Well, it's good to see you again as we get together every week on Wednesday nights to look at some passages out of the Psalms and see what we can learn and what we can glean from them. Last week, we opened up Psalm 137. We talked about uh, a life of regret and how to avoid that. It's a sad thing when you live your life and you realize you've come to the place to where you can't really do a whole lot about you know, the problems of it or the regrets of your life. I mean, it's a blessing when you can. And some of you that are watching are young enough, you can make some changes and you can have a fruitful, productive, wonderful, God-honoring life. There are some who you may look and you say, well, I agree with you, but it's too late to change. Well, I might challenge that. I don't think it's ever too late to do the right thing. But I do understand sometimes so much time has passed and uh, you, you feel like it won't do any good. That must have been the way this psalmist was feeling. Uh, some scholars believe that this part about uh, by the waters of Babylon, the uh, Tigris, Euphrates River, um, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion, that this was written maybe the year before King Cyrus made the decree that they could go back to their homeland. Um, maybe they didn't know. Maybe they did. I don't know. The uh, scripture was clear. It was going to be a 70-year uh, exile. And if you read the book of Daniel, Daniel certainly knew from the prophecies of Jeremiah. But maybe not everybody had access to them. And maybe they didn't understand it. I don't know. But this is very sad when they say we hung our harps on the willows and the people, their captives, wanted to taunt them and to make fun of their religion, to make fun of their God by saying, sing us some of those, you know, songs of Zion. You know, those are such great songs about your powerful God that we conquered, about your powerful God that couldn't protect you from Nebuchadnezzar, about your powerful God that you know, you were afraid to go into the Holy of Holies in the temple, but Nebuchadnezzar wasn't, and he plundered all of that temple. Sing, sing some of those songs. And they were doing it just to uh, make fun of them and doing it just for entertainment. So this is what's on their mind, and this is what they're thinking. So we're going to pick up again Psalm 137, and we're going to go verses 4 through 6. Listen to what he says. How shall we sing the Lord's song, the Lord's song, the Psalms, in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Or if I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem, above my chief joy. Now, just three points. Number one, <clears throat> the reason for the singing is gone. You know, there are just sometimes singing feels right. It's appropriate. There are those times when bursting out in song is just easy. Um, I love going to football games 
when they sing and they honor the national anthem. Uh, the football games I would go to would be up in Stillwater, of course, and they would have the band come out and do the pregame things. And then they would say, uh, everyone, please stand and salute for our national anthem. And then there's a drum roll, and then the song comes up, and uh, people would have their hands over their hearts, and veterans would be doing a military salute, and uh, virtually all of us would be singing. Nobody was embarrassed. Uh, some should be, but uh, nobody was embarrassed. And uh, there were tears sometimes. Sometimes there would be a flyover of jets. Uh, sometimes there would be certain people honored if it were you know, during a time of war or uh, something like that, memorialized maybe. And it just, nobody seemed to have any problem singing. Okay? But if uh, you were seated at the dinner table with people you didn't know, let's say in a really nice restaurant, and somebody said to you, why don't you stand and sing a verse of our national anthem? I don't know about you, but yeah, there, there's no way that's going to happen. And uh, sometimes singing is easy. Sometimes it's hard. This is hard. The psalmist is saying here, that these songs that are the Lord's songs, they're out of the Psalms, the Hebrew National Hymnal, right? And these people are making sport out of this. These people are doing it to make fun of Yahweh, to make fun of the Jews, to make fun of their religion, to make fun of their faith, to make fun of their traditions. They're exalting themselves and trampling under the name of God, the worship of God, and the people of God. And you know, it's at a time like that, I understand what he's saying. Boy, the song's just not there. Those songs that they used to sing when they were kids at Passover, those songs they used to sing when they would go to the temple for feasts and festivals, those songs that they would sing about their ancestors. Can you imagine when they're singing a song about David or Solomon, when they're singing a song about Joshua, maybe, or Moses, and they're thinking about the prophets and uh, all of the things that they said, all of the things that were promised to the Jews. How do you sing that in Babylon? How do you sit there and sing that when people are pointing and laughing, when they're making fun of you? when the whole thing is just a colossal joke? How, how do you do that? Don't ask me. I don't know. I can understand what he's talking about. The reason for the singing is just, well, it's gone. How do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So don't misunderstand. He's not saying that you can't go to India and sing How Great Thou Art. Of course you could. But these circumstances are not missionary circumstances. They're not evangelistic circumstances or anything like that at all. How do we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How do we sing about the greatness, the faithfulness of God when we are held captive here in Babylon by these pagans? So this is uh, pretty sad. And uh, it's also the kind of thing that uh, I think maybe we can understand. 
You know, there are times when we should sing, but we just don't, and sometimes we feel like we can't. Sometimes people amaze us, and maybe a loved one is killed, and we see them maybe at the funeral. I remember after the Murrah Building bombing, um, Alita Biddy, she worked in Social Security. She was probably right at ground zero. And just about the time she would have opened up her booth for business is about the time the bomb went off. She may have even been looking at him, I don't know. We uh, waited a long time before we had the funeral because it took them from April 19th all the way up to the month of May to recover her body. Her husband, Henry, some people call him Hank, um, he said, Olita, he said, you know, he called me Preach. He said, you know, Preach, she loved kids. I go, oh, yeah. She always worked in the nursery, worked with children's choirs, those type of things. He said, uh, she ain't coming out until they find the last of those babies. Did you know that it was the day after they found the last child from the daycare that they brought out Olita's body? It was a sad time. And I remember when we came into the church for the funeral, standing room only. In fact, there was an overflow crowd out in the courtyard of the church. Senators, congressmen, people from uh, D.C., the head of the Social Security Administration was there. A lot of people like that. It was, a, it was quite an event. Very, very sad. And at the end, Henry wanted us to sing Victory in Jesus. Ben Siemens, some of you remember him. He had been a member here before he came out to work with me in Tuttle. Ben started leading us in victory in Jesus, and Henry stands. And he takes his hands and takes his family members and has them stand. And then they sang, Oh, victory in Jesus, with their hands raised to the Lord. How do you do that? How do you do that? There were a lot of people there that day that couldn't sing, and they didn't see any reason to sing. But Henry had a reason to sing because he knew his wife was in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wanted to honor Jesus even in that funeral service. How do you do that? Only by the grace of God. But had we changed that situation, and it was sing victory in Jesus... I don't know, at a Ku Klux Klan rally? No. If we're doing that at a place where all it is is something to mock the Lord Jesus, all it is is something to laugh about it, and we sing victory in Jesus, and people are just, I don't know, making fun of the whole thing, might be a little bit different. Where there's no real testimony, where there's no real opportunity to do anything. Does that make any sense? It's probably not the best illustration, but can you kind of see it and can you kind of feel where these people are? This type of singing of this type of song just seemed entirely inappropriate. This is something that pains the psalmist. It hurts. How do we sing? I mean, you can feel it 
in the statement, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land, a pagan land, in a land where we are captives, in a land where everything we say about God seems to be a mockery. So the reason for the song was gone, just couldn't bring it out. Now, let's also understand that according to the Old Testament law, there were some things that could only be done in the temple. And maybe the psalmist, when um, he thinks about the songs they would sing, maybe he's thinking it's only appropriate in temple worship. And the temple's gone. The temple's been destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar has plundered the temple and it's laying in ruins. And I'm not going to sing any of these songs while Jerusalem lays in ruins. I can't do this while the city of God, the holy city, is in ruins. The walls are down. <clears throat> you remember Nebuchadnezzar. You remember Nehemiah. When he heard the condition of the walls of Jerusalem, you remember he couldn't even eat. And he was so distraught about it that the king even said, hey, Nehemiah, what's wrong? I mean, uh, Nehemiah could have been in a lot of trouble for being sad in the presence of the king, but he couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. This is Jerusalem. And maybe this psalmist is talking the same way. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land when we're not in the land where we belong? And when we think about what has happened to the land, it has been desolated by these uh, Gentile pagans. And we just can't sing while Jerusalem is in ruins and while the temple is a pile of rubble is there. So think about all of that, that they want our Israel to sing so they could mock them instead of worshiping the motive and the situation is just all wrong. Now, the exile, of course, is prophesied, as we already said, to be 70 years uh, long, 70 years. Now, if you think about the fact that, uh, you know, the Bible was written thousands of years ago, 70 years doesn't seem so long or so bad. It's actually not a lifetime sentence. Uh, 70 years, a lot of people live past the age of 70. But I want you to think about what that meant. 70 years is still, that seven decades is a long time. I haven't reached 70 yet. Some of you have, but if you are 70, you don't remember anything, you know, uh, all the way back to 70 years because nobody remembers when they were an infant or when they were a small child. What, what's your first memory? I've got some pretty clear memories at five and maybe some at four, but they're a little sketchy at best. Um, so in order to remember Jerusalem after 70 years, you would have to be in Babylon at this time uh, at least, what, 75 or more? So you're getting old by this point. And anybody under that age, they don't even remember Jerusalem. See, I'm 61. If I'd been in this situation, I had never been to Jerusalem. All I'd known is Babylon. All I had known is being in exile. All I had known was what I experienced here so think about what that was like. There were some people who couldn't remember, and there were some people who could remember, and there were some people, if you were 
in your 30s when you were taken captive, exiled to Babylon. You were dead by this point. If you were 40 when you were captured, you were dead by this point. And a lot of people during this exile that came into Babylon with all of the captives are gone now. They're gone. And there are a lot of them that don't remember it, even though they were in Jerusalem. And there are a significant number of people in that seven decades that they were born in Babylon, and Babylon is all they know. And so sing your songs. What song is that? We've never heard that song. We've never been to the temple. We've never been to Jerusalem. We don't remember any of that. You can imagine what the psalmist is thinking here. It seems as though our heritage is gone. It seems as though our worship um, is changed. It's different. This is a tough time. So the old people are never going to see Jerusalem again, never going to see a temple again, never going to go through a ritual or a feast or the Passover at the temple again. And the young exiles, people like uh, Daniel that were taken in there, well, uh, they're going to be old when they go back to the land, unable to work the land, unable to uh, lay the bricks and the stones. And it, it's just the whole thing is a sad situation for an awful lot of people. So how can we sing these happy, joyous songs about God in a foreign land? So it's just a hard, hard, hard thing. In fact, after captivity, when they even get back to the land, that land is going to be devastated. It hadn't been farmed in decades. A lot of their ancestral lands where their daddy or their granddaddy had, you know, built a house and a barn and had a crop and had all of that. Think about what that land's going to look like now after all of this time. Maybe somebody else has taken over the land and claimed it. And you've got a fight on your hand, legal battles to try to get it back. That's not uh, beyond reason, is it? And it's just going to take time. Think about the condition of the roads, the condition of the walls. We know about that. All of this, it's going to take a long time to replenish what Nebuchadnezzar had plundered. Uh, some of the items for the temple, it's going to take 16 years to build the temple. And then you've also got to make sure all of the uh, furnishings of the temple are rebuilt as well. And these people are poor and the economy is not very good. Some of these people have never even seen the rituals. There are going to be some priests there. Yeah, they're legitimate priests, but they've never even been to the temple. They've never seen any. They've got to learn all of the uh, rituals and all of the protocol <clears throat> that's in there. Now, there is one positive about it. Have you ever noticed that you never saw a synagogue in the Old Testament? But when you get to the New Testament... Synagogues are everywhere. Jesus goes to synagogues. The apostles go to the synagogues. The apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys, every town he went to, he would hunt up a synagogue first. Where did the synagogues come from? Synagogues were invented during the exile of Babylon. They, couldn't, they weren't in their own homeland, and they uh, had no temple temple had been destroyed and it was too far away anyway. And so what they did is they would gather together if there were uh, a group of Jews in a situation. And the rule was you had to have at least 10 Jewish men in order to form a synagogue. And so they would form the synagogue. What was the purpose of that? Well, it kept Jewish identity and Jewish purpose going. But more than that, it's a place where they would go and they could sing there. 
at least some of the songs. And they could worship there. They couldn't do everything. It didn't replace the temple. There's only going to be one temple, but it, it, it helped. And there were some things they could do there. In fact, early New Testament, um, the early New Testament church was patterned after the synagogues. It was the church is a local assembly of believers. And there's praying and there's singing and there's giving and there's preaching of the word of God like we're doing now. That all came out of the synagogues. Guess where the synagogues came from? They came out of Babylon. Do all things work together for good? You bet they do. Can good come out of dark and evil times? You bet it can. And when you uh, find that there are certain things that are taken away from you and things that don't make sense anymore, is there always an alternative? I think there is. God doesn't leave us without a witness and without a way to be his people and to uh, serve him and honor him. And so all of this stuff is going on and you can see the uh, rather confusion and you can see the um, problems that would come up, but you can also see the blessings that would come up as well. And this helps them keep their identity distinct. They don't just <clears throat> become Babylonians. We're Jews. We worship on Saturday and we worship in the temple and we look at the scriptures and we pray to the God who created the heavens and who has promised us that he is going to put us back in the land again. Okay? Number two, think about his pledge to the Lord. He makes a pledge. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Okay, for most of us being right-handed, uh, how helpless are you if you are confined to your left hand? I had an uncle that uh, had a, uh, an incident when he was accident, when he was grinding hay, and he lost his right arm. Had just a stump up here just above the elbow. And that meant he was, for the rest of his life, he had to use his left hand. And he learned how to do that. But uh, the, the psalmist here is saying, it'd be like you being... Um, having your right arm cut off. It loses its skill. Can you imagine how hard it would be to learn to do everything with your left hand? And then he says, if I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. Well, that'll, that'll stop your song and your talking and everything else. It sounds uncomfortable if you've ever been that thirsty where your tongue stuck to your mouth. Not a good situation to be in. And so he's saying, I don't want to be the kind of person that just blends in where I am and forgets God, forgets to worship, and forgets the place where the Lord promised that we would be. I don't want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be the person that just assimilates into Babylon and Babylon language, Babylon culture, Babylon religion, and Babylon ways. Don't want to do that. I'm going to remember Jerusalem, even if I die in Babylon. I don't know how old the psalmist was. He may be, uh, have been one that is going to die before they're allowed to go back home. Doesn't matter. He's not going to forget Jerusalem because to him, and you can see it in here, forgetting Jerusalem is tantamount to forgetting God, forgetting the scripture, forgetting the promises, forgetting the Jewish nation and the covenant and all of that. It, it's just 
would be gone. And so he's not going to do that. And uh, that's his pledge. I'm going to remember the city of God. I'm not going to sing while Jerusalem's in ruins, as we said earlier. And um, I'm not going to play the Lord's songs that are supposed to be worshipful to entertain pagans. And he's not going to let his children just simply assimilate into Babylonian culture, which you've got to admit, that would be hard to keep that from happening, that he would rather lose his skill than to assimilate and to become like them. Okay, let's put it this way. His body was in Babylon, but his heart was in Jerusalem. His body was in Babylon, but his heart was in Jerusalem. And that's kind of like us. Our bodies are here on earth, but our hearts ought to be in heaven with the Lord and with the people of God. It ought to be that when we're unable to attend church, our body may be somewhere else, but our heart is here. This is where we want to be worshiping with the people of God. So thirdly, Restoring worship in the homeland is the goal. The goal is not just to get out of Babylon. The goal is not just to get back to the farm at home. The, the goal is not just to no longer be in exile. You know, sometimes when the consequences of sin come upon us and the chastisement of God comes upon us, we kind of fall short, don't we? We think if I could just get out of this and my goal is just to get out of this situation to change my circumstances. That's not the goal. You see, the goal here is to restore worship in the homeland. We want to get home. We want to rebuild the temple and we want to sing the songs where they are supposed to be sung in the temple, in the worship of God, back in the land that God promised us. That's what it means when he says, if I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. Loyalty to Jerusalem was equated with loyalty to God. That's interesting in 1 Kings 9, 3, it says, Yahweh said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have made this house holy it's talking about the temple, which you have built to put my name there forever. Think about that. To the Jews, Jerusalem was a place where God said, I put my name here. I've written my name on it. This belongs to me. This is my place, my temple and my city. Now, had the Jews honored that, it never would have been destroyed. But they didn't. And so God said, I love my people so much. And in order to reclaim them, you can have the city and you can tear down the place where they worship me in order to reclaim them. Second Chronicles 6, 6. God says, but I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there and have chosen J David to be over my people Israel. So exalting Jerusalem was to exalt God and God himself. It was to exalt God's kingdom, to exalt God's word, to exalt God's worship, and to exalt God's glory. And it was to exalt and live in the promises of God. This is what the psalmist is really saying. We can't sing it here, but there's hope because we're going to be back in the land one of these days. So how do you handle the chastisement of God. How do you handle it when God has put you someplace where you don't want to be 
especially when it's because of your own sin? How do you handle it when life has not turned out the way you want it to be? How do you handle it when God's plans don't seem to match up with your plans? Let me give you some ideas here. First of all, I would say face reality. You have some limitations and you've got to understand that some things are never going to change. Some of these people would never see Jerusalem again. So what does that mean? They're off the hook. Does that mean they're not responsible? Does that mean they can live any way that they want to live? No. And uh, they've got to face the limitations that they have, but they're not off the hook. Uh, secondly, then, be innovative. What did these people do? They're in Babylon, and no, they can't sacrifice at the temple, but they can gather in a synagogue. It's the next best thing. It's not optimal, but it's the next best thing. In fact, they liked it so well, they kept doing it when they got back into the land, and it continues on even to this day, doesn't it? Be innovative. Do something productive instead of just sitting around and whining and complaining about the way things used to be. There's something you can do now that's going to be productive. Then here's another exhortation, I guess you'd say. Don't quit. God's will is going to be done. So finish the race. You don't know when things are going to change. You don't know when a King Cyrus is going to make a decree that's going to allow you to leave where you are right now and go home. And I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. You don't know when the situation's going to change. God's got a plan. Don't quit. Don't quit. Don't be out of the will of God whenever God moves. You know, there are some people that they don't like what God has done in their life or in their family, and so now they've abandoned God. What if God changes all of that, and now all of a sudden your family's right with God and you're not? That'd be a terrible, terrible place to be, wouldn't it? So keep the future in mind. It's the last exhortation. Keep the future in mind. The next generation has to overcome your chastisement. See, the old people weren't going to be able to go back and do all that needed to be done to get the land and the temple and the houses and the buildings and the farms in shape. The young people were going to have to do it, and the young people might have been thinking, good night, why do we have to do all this work? We didn't commit the sin. We weren't the ones that caused the problem, but we have to come back and fix what the old people messed up. Boy, that's a sad thing to say, isn't it? May it never be said of those who follow us that we had to fix what the old people messed up because we walked with God in all circumstances consistently and we did it for the glory of God and the next generation could walk in our footsteps. Thank you for your time. Pray for one another. Download the um, prayer list and the newsletter from the church website, gracewayokc.org. And uh, I appreciate your support and your giving and your prayers more than you know. And uh, I'm doing this recording earlier because I've uh, got to have an echocardiogram and I appreciate your prayers and all of that, that the doctors will know what to do, figure out what's wrong. And uh, <laughs> I'm kind of asking selfishly for either a miracle or an easy fix. Sound good? But whatever, we'll trust the Lord with all of that. And uh, I'm thankful for you. And I pray that the Lord blesses you. And we'll look forward to seeing you 
on Sunday.